Can you guide Bernard, Laverne, and Hoagie to victory over the evil purple tentacle? Well, let's find out with Day of the Tentacle this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 91 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. As always, I'm your host, Joe, and we are back once again to talk about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. So first things first, uh, I really want to thank the guys for for hanging out with me uh, last time around on our, is that the fifth hangout, fourth hangout, fifth hangout, the fifth hangout on... um, Diamond in the Rough games, so much great information. I only got great feedback from all you guys about uh, about the games that we talked about and uh, the memories we dragged up and and all of that. And I've even got a few follow up uh, follow up emails and voicemails and stuff about that that I'm going to start the show with. So thanks a lot to Brian, Tomer, and uh, and Trolls for uh, for hanging out with me and uh, and having another great talk. I really, really love, uh, doing those things. I mean, it's, it's, it's stressful for me in a way. Cause, uh, you know, running conversations and all that, not my forte, but, uh, you know, these guys make it so easy. And if you want to join in, you can just, uh, you know, draw, head over to a patreon.com slash UMB cast. And, uh, if you give to the show at the $5 per episode or higher level, then, uh, you earn the right to come on to, uh, these really awesome hangouts and, uh, and talk with uh, a bunch of cool people. Least of least cool of which is me. Got a really big show to uh, to go over this week. A lot of information, a lot of voicemails, and all that stuff. Like I just said, but uh, yeah, it's a little later than I wanted it to be. And uh, to be honest, this time I feel like I have a pretty uh, valid excuse. Um, I've been doing a couple things, uh, a couple more things around the house. Uh, you know, more cooking, more cleaning, and all that. Because uh, my wife is a little bit indisposed uh, currently because uh, she is pregnant. We are. Uh, expecting a little girl in uh near the end of october so uh <laughs> i guess we'll see um you know till then uh, shows should be pretty normal and you know the, the way they are and all that then uh you know come come end of october um you know it'll, it's my first child so i don't know how all this is gonna is gonna work everyone tells me that uh, i won't be sleeping much and uh you know things like that i'm sure a lot of you that have had kids and have kids uh can give me a ton of uh advice and horror stories and wonderful stories and all that. And, uh, you know, I'm going to try and keep getting the show out, uh, you know, while things kind of settle in. But, um, you know, I'm putting this out there early because I want people to start thinking about it a little bit. I'm thinking kind of around, you know, that time. Uh, it might be cool to maybe do a few more sort of hangy outy things that require a little bit less, um, you know, research put in on, on my part just while I'm kind of uh, rearranging my, my life and my schedule and, and how all that stuff works when, uh, when our little UM baby arrives and um, yeah. So either that or maybe some guest shows, if you guys have uh, you know, any games that you think you might want to talk about for uh, for an hour or so in, uh, in the vein of the podcast, or maybe some other kind of cool retro topics like uh, some hardware type stuff, or, you know, I know a bunch of you are into music and the demo scene and maybe do kind of like, you know, a cool little overview of stuff like that, that I can throw on the feed just, uh, you know, to, uh, bide some time, keep some content coming out and, uh, stuff like that. Well, uh, 
what we get back on track, I think that'd be pretty cool. So keep that in mind. Uh, you know, hopefully uh, if all goes well, we won't have to worry about this till, uh, till October, end of October, beginning of November. But, uh, yeah, wife and I are very, very excited. This is kind of a cool new chapter. And, uh, I hope you guys, uh, get to come along with me on the, on the whole situation. And, uh, you'll be around in a few years when I get to, uh, introduce her to some cool old games that I loved when I was a kid. Okay, so all that aside, happy news, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Let's uh, get to some emails because we have got a ton of them. So first, we have an email from James and he writes, Hey there, Joe, just started listening to the cast this week and am impressed. No one goes into the detail that you do that invokes nostalgic feelings. Why do you think old games make us so nostalgic? To me, it's something that still makes sense in a world where everything is different. Anyway, just my two cents and keep up the good work. Well, thanks, James. And ooh, we're starting off. Uh, I just did, did gave big life changing news, and now we're getting down to the deep topics of uh, you know why we like old games and why we have nostalgia for things. And honestly, you know, I sort of think that um, yeah, maybe it's kind of not so much like reminiscences of simpler times, but I think it's like anything from the past. You know, you you know, generally you played these things when, when you were younger, when you were a kid, when you had more free time, when you were perhaps generally happier and less stressed. And, uh, you know, you had more free time to really dive deep into things like this. And, uh, you know, I think going back to that probably brings back memories of, of those good times. You know, you wouldn't be nostalgic for something if you hated it or if you weren't happy when you did it, like you won't be nostalgic for, I don't know, going to the doctor and getting a blood test or you wouldn't be nostalgic for being in a car accident, you know, like anything like that. But you would be nostalgic for positive things like, you know, going back to reread a book that you read when you were young and, you know, maybe because it reminds you of that time, maybe because you gather new things from it because it's the same experience, but from a different angle. So, you know, I just think it's, uh, we're humans. We like living in the past and in a lot of ways and, and remembering good times. And I think uh, games and movies and books and other media and activities and places are, are catalysts for that. Like our, you know, there's a lot of the memories stuffed away in our brains and we don't, you, we aren't very, very good at, uh, recalling things very specifically. And I think, you know, triggers like that games and movies and books and trips and people and songs and all that act as triggers for, for memories, be they positive or negative. And I think, you know, if you have a game, like, you know, even the game I talked about today triggered a lot of really positive, warm memories of me laughing and enjoying myself while I was at my computer playing through it. So I think it's 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 really that, though I'm not really sure what I'm talking about anymore because I'm babbling. But anyways, um, that's the reason for me. And uh, yeah, hope that makes sense. Next, we have an email or at least the first part of an email from Jenny. Jenny writes, hello, Joe and fellow blockers. Interesting hangout session you had recently. Glad to hear some games I used to play got some airtime, and I was also introduced to a few that sounded interesting. How did I miss Chrono Master? And Ripper sounds right up my alley. Though I do have a question for trolls. Uh-oh, trolls, you're being called out. What do you do with the money that goes in the swear jar? Because as far as I can tell, it goes to fund the swear jar the next time around, and that doesn't seem particularly sporting. So, um, yes, trolls. What do you do with the money with the weird Danish coins that you throw into that swear jar uh you've been called out so uh i expect an answer in uh in voicemail form in the next episode all right so that's it for the emails now we've actually got a couple of uh 
of voicemails, uh, including a, a decent, decent length one from, uh, from Gareth. So we'll start off with that one. Take it away, Gareth. Hi, Joe. It's Gareth. Um, I've only been listening live to the show as the episodes come out for a couple of months, but uh, what I've been doing in the meantime is raking through some of your old episodes and listening to those ones that were on the games that I loved as a kid, and I've been enjoying them immensely, and I wanted to phone in. Um, I'm calling in to talk about a spin-off from one of those earlier episodes, the one on Master of Orion. And yes, I know that that episode was released in August 2013, that long ago. But there is news, sort of. Um, And in no way is this just an excuse for me to call in and um, gush about Master of Orion. No, the news is that Paradox Games, uh, the people who do Cities Skylines, uh, Crusader Kings, Europa Universalis, They've just released a real-time strategy game set in space that is very much based on Moo. Um, if you've ever played Crusader Kings, uh, you'll kind of get the kind of the game mechanics. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's real-time, even though it plays a lot like a turn-based strategy game. It's quite difficult to explain, but um, it, I've been watching some of the Let's Play videos and that kind of stuff, and I thought, well, you know, if you have listeners that still play modern games, they might be quite interested, especially if they liked... Um, Master of Orion. Um, but of course, this is the post XP Windows gaming era, um, and we don't want to talk about that, do we? We're the pre Windows XP gaming era. So I wanted to talk about another Microprose 4X space game, uh, one that was released in May 1999 and was effectively Moo 2, uh, but set in the Star Trek universe, and it was called Star Trek, registered trademark, The Next Generation registered trademark, colon, Birth of the Federation, uh, hereafter, Birth of the Federation, uh, which I played a lot when I was a teenager and loved it. Um, And it was only a couple of years later, actually, when I got the internet at home uh, at a more reliable speed, uh, that I kind of did a bit of research on it and realized that, oh, it's it's this game, Master of Orion 2, but effectively the Star Trek version, let's check out this other game and got into that. Uh, a few years later, um, also got into Endless Space, which was a game that you mentioned, uh, but obviously not a patch on um, on Moo 2, uh, and not on um, on Birth of the Federation, which I quite liked. Now, if people do go back to your episode 35, uh, they'll hear about the core game mechanics of these kind of games, so I don't want to go too much into those. I just wanted to talk a bit about the differences. Um, well, there's no Orion in uh, Next Generation, obviously, uh, but you can take control of any of the five major empires from that Next Generation DS9 Voyager kind of uh, era of the Trek universe. So you've got the Federation, who are very good at being diplomatic, the Ferengi, who are the traders, the Romulans, who are the spies, the Klingons, who are the military, uh, and then the Cardassians, who are a bit fighty, a bit espionage um, and are very good at sort of uh, industry and keeping control of a large, sprawling empire. Now, each of the five races always starts in the same star system, but in random parts of the galaxy. So, for example, uh, the Federation starts in, always starts in a system called Sol, which has nine planets. Um, so, yes, this is the pre-Windows XP and the pre-Pluto isn't a planet era of gaming. Um, and the Klingons always start in Quonos. Uh, the Romulans always start on Romulus, those sorts of things. And it's from here that you can then go out and explore the galaxy, as you would have done in Mu 2. Although only one empire can colonise any one system at a time, 
Uh, and then there's this sort of territory border dispute system that works using which systems you control, where you've built your star bases and star ports and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think it works quite well, but um, I don't want to go into too much detail about that here. Um, how they keep the game interesting when you've only got five players effectively is by introducing minor races. So, for example, you have the Vulcans, the Beta Zeds, um, the Pakleds, you might remember a few others, the Andorians from um, from Star Trek, uh, Star Trek lore. Um, and each of these minor races has their own unique technologies and personality traits, which will affect how they treat you in diplomatic negotiations, and it will affect what you can build on those planets if you manage to take control of them. Um, so, for example, uh, you might want to, if you're Klingon... Uh, take control of a planet that has uh, a, a race that can build um, very good militaristic um, uh, units or special buildings or, or something like that. Um, and you can get these races to become part of your empire either by conquering them, as you might do if you were Klingon, uh, or by um, making them like you so much that they apply for membership, which you can do by either being very nice to them, if you're the Federation, or just by bribing them, which is what the Ferengi will try and do. Um, so that kind of changes the gameplay dynamic. So you might want to avoid races that despise you, especially if they have their own fleets, or you might want to conquer a race that has specific technology that will enhance your strengths and hide your weaknesses and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, I loved this game. I could talk about it forever, but I'm not trolls, so I want to finish up pretty soon. I just wanted to say that the game isn't flawless, as some pointed out at the time. The AI isn't really nuanced enough to give you a rich Star Trek experience. So, you know, for example, the Klingons are more likely to want to invade and, you know, they will have a grudging respect for you if you're the Federation and they'll hate you if you're the Romulans, but it doesn't really quite have that kind of flavour. In the end, each of the empires just basically does the same thing regardless of circumstances or anything else. And also, and I think this was probably a big blunder actually, they didn't take the opportunity to include original series ships and technology, which seems to me to be an obvious thing to do. You know, early on you want ships like the original Enterprise and then late on you want that kind of uh, late-era Voyager Enterprise kind of thing. I mean, they you know, they could have done that. They didn't. It just felt like a decision that was taken by lawyers and IP holders rather than um, a game designer or a, or a Star Trek fan. And it, I don't know. I don't think it fatally undermines the game. I mean, I played it forever, loved it. But, you know, for me, it was it, it just felt a bit off. The game is still available, I think, if you look around for it, although you will have major compatibility issues on Windows 7 and above, so it might be worth um, looking at uh, videos on YouTube before thinking about actually purchasing it and trying to play it. Now, there were a couple of fan projects that were going about 10 years ago to try and make a Birth of the Federation 2 for modern machines um, and to fix some of those flaws that I mentioned above. Um one of those fan projects forked off um, to do a game that didn't use Star Trek IP um, because, you know, uh, Paramount and CBS can get a bit uh, lawyery. Um, and it's chugging along today. It's called Birth of the Empires. Um, it's German, but there is an English version. Um, and it's totally open source and completely free, and that's available through their website. Um, it's very raw at the moment, but I think it goes a long way to recreating the feel of the original and does feel quite a bit like uh, Master of Orion 2 come Birth of the Federation type uh, type kind of hybrid. Um, 
There is another one called Star Trek Supremacy, but that hasn't been updated at all this decade and does appear to be dead. Right, I've been going for about eight minutes. I have taken far too much of your time. Keep doing what you do, and please do transport Tycoon soon, and then you'll get another half-hour rant in your inbox. Okay, bye. Well, thank you, Gareth, and uh, you are holding up uh, the the tradition of long emails from the backseat designers. <laughs> so, uh, but great, great info, and uh, I don't think you said the name of the modern game from Paradox. Oh, excuse me, which uh, I believe is Stellaris, Stellaris. Uh, I know Brian, the uh, the space game junkie, uh, did a couple of videos on it, and uh, looks pretty cool. Uh, and and apparently, as Paradox games go, uh, quite approachable. You know, because uh, Paradox games tend to not be all that approachable. But uh, yeah, and you know, I think I've said this before and I'll say it again. I'm a, a ridiculously huge Star Trek fan. It was, you know, it was my first love before I, I found out about Star Wars and and all of that. But my my Trek gaming history is, is pretty poor. You know, I think I, I played, you know, the games I covered, uh, 25th Anniversary and Judgment Rights. I played a Final Unity and I played... Part of Deep Space Nine Harbinger, but aside from that, I really didn't touch any of the the ship based uh, Trek games. So, uh, and then this is definitely not even ship based. This is more you know four X kind of a deal. And I've heard I've heard interesting things. So thanks for that. And um, you know I'll, I, I may have to slot in Birth of the Federation. It's it's still in the time frame, you know ninety nine ish. And um, yeah, great info about it. And see, everyone that that's sort of what I was talking about. If you want to do something like that, like like. Gareth did for you know later on uh come baby time uh that'd be great you know expand that out to uh you know 30 40 45 minutes an hour dev story all that noise or whatever you want uh and then drop a line so hey great example there Gareth thank you so next we've got a voicemail from Jason take it away hello Joe and fellow blockers I'm Jason from down under uh United States, I mean, uh, Massachusetts to be precise, and I've been binge listening for about two months. I started with episode one and just finished episode 65, your first Patreon show today. I guess I'm averaging about a show a day, but I know I listened to three on Saturday while going about my daily activities, running, yard work, etc. But I haven't listened to any of the current shows. I'm just around early 2015, so I don't even know if you still do mail on the episodes. Anyways, I'm super impressed with your show and the amount of content that you get together for it within the two weeks that you usually record. I've been meaning to send a message in a couple of times, but I'm finally sitting down to do it because I have to help your listeners out with something, but I'll get to that in a minute. First off, I'm a bit terrified of catching up. All the Kickstarters you talk about sound so interesting, I'm afraid that when I'm current, I'm going to be buying into them all. I love that aspect of the show, even in the standalone show format, because I don't actively keep up with gamer forums or blogs or whatever. Secondly, and I'm just a bit older than you, and I thought I played a fair bit of games when I was a kid, but wow, I just love being introduced to all these new titles. You really capture the essence of the games and do a great job of describing the game without spoiling it, and the dev stories are very interesting. I've tuned in with my son to a couple. We have done audiobooks on some longer car rides, and he gravitates to some of the nonfiction video game books like Minecraft by Linus Larson or Extra Lives by Tom Bissell. This could be an interesting list, books about video game industry. What else do your listeners recommend? He just turned nine last week and is really into the story aspect of games, so he's enjoyed some of your shows too. I just had to filter out trolls. So keep providing the disclaimers. He's only nine. Okay, besides heaping accolades onto you and commending you on your good work, hearing you guys complain about that maze and seventh guest yet again was what I finally needed to send a message. 
It's super easy to get through any maze, whether it's your local Halloween corn maze or that basement maze in the game. Pick a direction, left or right, and just make turns in only that direction until you are out. It may take a bit, but you'll be successful 100% of the time. Spoiler alert, in 7th guest, pick right. It's way quicker. But also, the maze is on a carpet upstairs in one of the bedrooms. Keep up the good work and block on. Well, thanks, Jason, and uh, <laughs> that's two. That's two times trolls has been called out in this episode. Uh, so, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know, and you're probably going to hear this after you've gone through five hangouts. So you'll probably figure it out. The hangouts are adults only. <laughs> They're sweary. We're drinking all that stuff. It's UMB after dark. Aside from that, the show is generally swear free. <laughs> that's just not not because of anything. That's just how I talk. I just don't generally swear all that much. So thanks for that. And uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> I've never been good at mazes and, and that's definitely a trick that I'm going to keep in keep in mind for uh, for next time I'm in one, be it in video form or in real life. So thanks. Keep on listening. And I hope you get caught up soon. And uh, I guess I do have to do a news show. It's been a long time. Um, I sort of dropped off them a little bit, I guess, as I said, because of, uh, you know, ex- extenuating circumstances. And uh, I wasn't sure people really liked them all that much so uh hey maybe i'll i'll do another cool thank you all right so finally we have a voicemail from martin wow we're 20 minutes in a lot of voicemails this week but uh very important to get them all in here because i love it when you guys send them and that's how i roll so take it away martin hey joe this is uh martin i couldn't make the um the memorial day weekend show because uh it's memorial day i have Lots of family, I just couldn't make it. But I do have a bunch to talk about. Uh, but sadly, since this is a voicemail, I'm just going to have to limit it to a few games. Uh, being, being a console gamer, I grew up with uh, a lot of crazy different uh, console games, and I never really got into computers until I moved in with my father later on. So, uh, I've, uh, a few diamonds in the rough for me are, uh, right off the bat, a game called Vortex. It was a game created by Argonaut Software, the same people who created the 3D uh, uh, Super FX chip for the Super Nintendo and helped with the development of Star Fox. It was their independent uh, venture into uh, video games. And uh, the best way I can explain this is it's basically uh, the, the uh, Star Fox 2 engine running on a Super FX 1 chip uh, on the Super Nintendo, and it's a mech game. It's with 3D Realm. Uh, it, it, the best, the best way I could. Just, it, it's basically Mech Warrior 2, but on your Super Nintendo. It even has camera controls. It's insane. You, you, your mech can change into different chips, and there's tons of enemies on the screen, and there's obstacles, and you walk around. It, uh, it legitimately blew my mind uh, that something like this could be on a Super Nintendo, and no one ever talks about it. Uh, there's, I think there's only like. Like five games total that use a Super FX chip, which is Stunt Race FX, Star Fox, Yoshi's Island, Vortex, and uh, one other. I think Yoshi's Island actually uses a Super FX 2 chip, uh, regardless. Uh, it's a fascinating game. You should definitely look it up on YouTube. Um, it's way ahead of its time. And uh, it's, just, it's just a game that I, no one talks about. It's insane. It's whatever. Look it up. Vortex Super Nintendo. Second game is a game called PTO for the Super Nintendo. It was uh, a strategy game. Well, actually, it's a grand strategy game. It's, it was my very first grand strategy game. It uh, 
It takes place uh, during the Pacific Theater of, of War, which is what the name stands for, PTO, Pacific Theater of Operations. And uh, it, uh, it's the Pacific Theater of World War II, and it's basically one giant uh, simulation where you have all these different fleets and different production uh, capabilities, and uh, it's super in-depth. It's super, super in-depth. Like, it didn't even have an instruction manual, so I had to like learn everything as uh, as I went along. So I would spend entire weeks during the summer just learning the game. I actually learned what the word scuttle meant because of this game. So um, it, it, Koei made the game, and Koei was... Uh, they, they made a whole bunch of other different um, grand strategy games for the Super Nintendo, including uh, one for the Eastern Front with, with ground warfare. Um, they also did um, some uh, Japanese medieval warfare grand strategy, and I think PTO did so well that they made a PTO too, but I've never got a chance to pick that game up, but uh, you should definitely look into that game. Uh, I wouldn't recommend YouTubing it, but um, because it's really slow paced. It's got some cutscenes for the battles, but, but it was really insane uh, scope that I hadn't even experienced before on, a, on, on any game, really. And because I do have some computer experience PC game experience, I, I do have to say that I have very fond memories of a game called Critical Path, and I think it was one of the early FMV games, in which you had to escort um, a girl in some weird um, facility, and you had to keep her alive by switching the cameras and activating things when she needed to. It was, I wish I could find more YouTube videos of it, because there's only really the intro in the first few minutes of gameplay, and I couldn't, for the life of me, get um, any VMware to uh, to start working with it. So, um, uh, those are my diamonds in the rough. I hope that resonates with someone, and I enjoyed looking forward to being in the next conversation. Bye. Well, thanks so much, Martin. And uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm officially calling you the uh, the upper memory block console correspondent, and and that's great, and that that's what I. What I love, and actually, you know, it's interesting. You kind of mentioned that uh, you know playing the the PTO game, uh, you know, taught you what the word scuttle meant, and uh, you know that's something that I think is very cool, and and something that I always try and point out to people is that you know games aren't just there for fun and and screwing around and whatever. Like you do, you do learn things. Like I always talk about aces the aces of the Pacific teaching me about the Pacific theater of World War II, and uh, you know reading the manual and reading through history and and stuff like that so you know even games that are not necessarily intended to be edutainment titles can still teach you things about you know history and and how things work and why they work and and simulation and puzzle solving and problem solving and, and everything like that so you know that's that's really 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 awesome and i think a very important component of uh of games so yeah all right thank you and now let's finally get on with things you're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for Overview. Whew, that was probably one of the longest uh, pre-shows that we've had, but uh, a lot of great info there. I know the shows after the Hangouts are always sort of like this because everyone participates, everyone says a bunch of stuff, and then everyone who was listening or couldn't make it says, oh, well, you didn't talk about this and you didn't talk about that. So anyways, on to the main event here. Uh, here we are with a long-awaited part two 
of the Maniac Mansion series, such as it is. I guess you don't really call it the Maniac Mansion series, but, you know, it, it sort of is that. So today, of course, I will be discussing Day of the Tentacle, the sequel to Maniac Mansion. Now, Day of the Tentacle, or DOT, as I'm sure I'll be calling it, that's D-O-T-T, Day of the Tentacle, uh, was developed and published by LucasArts in the year 1993, so about four years after the release of the original game. All right, so we usually talk genre here. I'm not going to spend much time on genre since, you know, we've got a lot to cover and uh, I talked about it last week, but uh, unsurprisingly, Day of the Tentacle is an adventure game. So uh, much like the last time, we are tasked with guiding a character or characters through a world and a story overcoming obstacles in the form of puzzles. Now, unlike in the first game in the series where there were dead ends and deaths and all that stuff, this game sort of ascribes to what we have come to know as you know, sort of the tenets, the rules, the style, the design of of LucasArts adventure games that we've come to know and love. Uh, you know, this basically translates to to no deaths, no Walking Dead situations where you have to restore a new save or an old save, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, you're a lot freer in, in this generation of LucasArts adventure to explore and to do whatever uh, than you were in previous games. And, and you know, it's to- a total and complete departure from the other big gun in the adventure game uh, realm at this time, Sierra, where, uh, you know, death and dead ends were, uh, were part of the experience for, for better or for worse. So because I'm sort of a jerk, I'm going to assume you all listened to the last show and you are now all experts on Maniac Mansion. Um, if you haven't listened to uh, episode 89 on a maniac mansion go do that now because uh i think it helps so you know i'll wait and uh you go listen to that and come back okay so you're back (laughs) anyways uh this game takes place five years after the events of uh, of the original and let's take a listen to the intro to see what's going on drink that. It looks bad for you. Nonsense. It makes me feel great, smarter, more aggressive. I feel like I could. Like I could. Just what I need for dissection lab tomorrow. I think I need that for the band, Laverne. You know, like we can bite its head off or whatever. Hands off that hamster. Friend of yours, Bernard? 
He belongs to Weird Ed Edison, and it looks like he's brought us a note. It's from my old friend, Green Tentacle. He says that Purple Tentacle's mutated into an insane genius, and Dr. Fred's going to kill them both. I thought I was free of Dr. Fred and those crazy Edisons forever. But now, I know that I must go back to the mansion. So that sort of gives us a taste of things to come. So the name of the game sort of gives us away, but obviously this game focuses on the tentacles, uh, Dr. Fred's mutant helpers from Maniac Mansion. Now, based on my playthrough of that game, uh, the two tentacles, purple and green, could not be any more different. Green Tentacle is a gentle and creative soul whose only aspiration in life is to make it big playing with his band. His brother is another story. In the first game, we saw that Purple Tentacle was Dr. Fred's lackey, doing his bidding unquestioningly. Well, it seems five years have passed and not much has changed. Uh, we join the two tentacles outside the mansion, where two pipes are belching toxic sludge into an otherwise idyllic landscape. So, what does Purple Tentacle do? But uh, he does what we'd all do, of course, he drinks the sludge. Now, if we did this, we'd probably die of cancer. However, Purple gets the good end of the stick. Uh, not only does the sludge cause him to grow some stumpy little tentacle T-Rex arms, it also turns him into a super genius bent on world domination. Dr. Fred's solution to this situation once he figures it out? Easy. Kill both tentacles. So as we heard, Green sends a letter to his friend, Bernard Bernoulli. Yep, the same Bernard that we played in the first game. Uh, the letter which is delivered by Weird Ed's pet hamster, asks Bernard for a rescue. Uh, of course, Bernard immediately jumps into action, recruiting his two roommates, Laverne and Hoagie, to help him on his quest. Now, <laughs> Bernard's roommates bear a little bit of discussion since they end up being two of our three protagonists in the game. Uh, Laverne is a tall, lanky, blonde med student who loves dissecting things. Uh, she's sort of already a bit of a mad scientist in training herself. Uh, Hoagie is the quintessential roadie. He's short, he's overweight, he looks like he hasn't washed in months, uh, he sports jeans, sneakers, an ill-fitting concert tour t-shirt, and a backwards hat. Uh, he likely hasn't cut his hair in years, and uh, yeah, you know, he looks uh, he looks the part. Uh, where Laverne's voice is high-pitched and inquisitive, Hoagie's is slow and drawling, sort of like a surfer dude without the skill or physical capacity to actually uh, do any surfing. So after a rousing credit sequence, which we just heard the beginning of there, the team arrives at the mansion, makes their way down to Dr. Ed's, or sorry, Dr. Fred's lab, and uh, frees both tentacles. This, of course, allows Purple to escape and continue on his own quest to take over the world. Okay, you're free to go. Thanks, Bernard. Yes, thank you, naive human. Now I can finish taking over the world. <laughs> Wait! Oh, yeah. Now I remember. He's incredibly evil, isn't he? Uh, I'll try to talk him out of it. 
Well, what possible harm could one insane mutant tentacle do? Leaping lab rats! Dr. Fred! What have you done this time, you meddling milk toast? Now Purple Tentacle is free to use his evil mutant powers to take over the world and enslave all humanity! Whoops! Our only hope now is to turn off my sludge magic machine and prevent the toxic mutagen from entering the river! Isn't it a little late for that, Doctor? Of course! That's why I'll have to do it! Yesterday! To the time machine! You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Okay, gameplay time. So, we know our quest. We need to stop Purple Tentacle from taking over the world. And we need to do it yesterday. Luckily, Dr. Fred can help us out with this via the Chronojohn, a set of three time machines he's created from three Portajohn portable toilets. This should all be very simple then. Dr. Fred sends our three heroes back to yesterday. Before all this takes place, they turn off the sludge-o-matic and thereby avoid the entire unpleasant situation. Well, we wouldn't have a much of a game if it was easy, so of course things don't go as they should. Since Dr. Fred is dirt poor, he bought a fake diamond to power his time machine. Not unexpectedly, his fake diamond doesn't do the job and cracks up under the strain of the immense time travel energies. Due to the failure, instead of sending all three Chronojohns one day into the past, Bernard returns to the current time, Hoagie gets sent 200 years into the past, and Laverne gets sent 200 years into the future. Not only that, but uh, she also gets stuck in a tree. So, on top of somehow still stopping Purple Tentacle, they also need to power up their respective chronojohns. That is, they need to plug them into a standard 120-volt outlet and return themselves to the present. Uh, this poses a particular problem for Hoagie, as there isn't a lot of electricity in the 1790s. Dr. Fred offers up a solution, though, and demonstrates one of the tentacles' uh, more unique gameplay systems at the same time. Then all your buddies have to do is plug in their respective chronojohns and... Plug them in? Where is Hoagie going to find an electrical outlet 200 years in the past? Yes, well, he'll be needing my patented super battery then, won't he? Now, where did I put those patented super battery plans of mine? Plans? How are we going to get Hoagie plans? Don't worry me with details, boy. Just help me find the plans. They're in this house somewhere. Now what am I going to do? I think I made myself perfectly clear. Step one, find plans. Step two, save world. Step three, get out of my house. Let's get cracking. Maybe I put them upstairs. That's got to be it. Upstairs! I've got the plans. Quick, we have to flush them to Hoagie. How did you get over there? My ingenious super battery design, please. 
you really flush them. Yes. Down the toilet. No, through time. Using the highly sophisticated time flux hydraulic vortex chamber I've installed in each chronogen, you can flush small inanimate objects to each other through time. Flush small inanimate objects to each other through time. Hello, Doctor Fred. Can you hear me? Drat. Did you hear something? No. Let's see if what's his name catches on. Oh great! I'm stuck in colonial times. Tentacles are taking over the world, and now the toilet's backing up. Okay, come over here. It's your old pal, Doctor Fred. Doctor Fred, how'd you get in there? I want you to pick up those plans you see in the chronogen, Hoagie. Bring them to Red Edison. He's my great, 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 great grandfather. He'll know what to do. You need the plans to make a super battery so you can plug in your chronogen. Okay, if you say so, Bernard. Good boy. Does he have any experience with electronics? Um. Well, I once saw him take three thousand volts directly through his head without batting an eye. Didn't he pass out? Well, he was already passed out when it happened. Time for me to save the world, I guess. All right. So much like in the first game, a critical gameplay element is transferring inventory items between your three heroes. However. This time, there's a twist. We've got to transfer them through time. Luckily, the chronogons provide that functionality as we just saw. So basically, a lot of the solutions to puzzles in this game involve time travel in some way, shape, or form. You've got solutions that are as simple as the example we just saw, instantly transferring items between characters to uh, some very ingenious puzzles involving changing things in the past to affect things in the future. Uh, another possible approach to puzzle solving is to leave things stored or hidden for two to 400 years and let them be found in future time periods kind of a little bit more naturally. Now the UI is, uh, is pretty much what we can expect in a scum game. Uh, the bottom third of the screen shows us our actions and in inventory with uh, a much reduced verb list from the first game. This time around, we only have a total of nine. We've got give, pick up, use, open, close, look at, talk to, push, and pull. Uh, inventory is to the right of that with cool stylized icons representing items. At the far right, uh, we have two squares that represent the protagonists that are not currently active. So if you're playing Bernard, then you'll have two icons, one for Laverne and one for Hoagie. And uh, if you're playing Bernard, or sorry, if you're playing Hoagie, one for Laverne and Bernard, blah, 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 etc. Clicking on one kid switches to them immediately. Uh, I've also been told that once you get the Chronogon demo, you can instantly transfer items between kids just by dropping the item on the appropriate icon. Though, to be honest, if that's true, I never knew and I've never tried it myself. Uh, I always hooked it all the way back to the Chronogon and dropped the item in. So uh, someone let me know if that's actually true. I can't remember who told me that. Uh, so keeping this iconic UI in mind though, so you know when you picture a scum game, you think of exactly that, the two thirds gameplay area, the one third UI. 
area. This is the last LucasArts game to use that UI convention. Uh, the next game, Sam and Max Hit the Road, which I covered way back in the first episode of this show, uh, started to trend to a full screen of graphics with a pop-up verb coin that uh, was used for pretty much the rest of uh, the Scum Adventures. So while being the last game to feature the old UI we're all accustomed to, it was also the first LucasArts game to fully, truly, and honestly ascribe to the no deaths and no dead ends rule. Uh, While the trend in previous games was towards no death, there were still ways to die in in Fate of Atlantis and Monkey Island and all that. Uh, In Day of the Tentacle, you cannot die and you always have the opportunity to revisit an area to get your hands on critical items. I guess that's the beauty of time travel. So that aside, uh, the rest of the game unfolds in a fairly standard LucasArts fashion. Laverne needs to escape from the future, where Purple Tentacle's plans for world domination have succeeded, and humans have been relegated to a subservient slave species. Uh, Hoagie needs to build and charge Dr. Fred's super battery by using things he could find uh, in the late 1700s, in addition to contending with uh, the founding fathers of the United States who are writing the U.S. Constitution at the Edison Mansion. Uh, in the past, some of the puzzles are helped by, pass- by a passing familiarity, and I mean a very passing familiarity with uh, U.S. history. You know, Basically, if you've seen some Looney Tunes cartoons, you probably know enough about U.S. history to, uh, to figure this stuff out. So in the present, Bernard sort of serves as uh, the linchpin between his two roommates. On top of helping uh, both of them out, he needs to find a way to make a cool two million bucks so he can buy Dr. Fred a new and real diamond for his time machine. Unfortunately, as we've mentioned, the Edisons have fallen on hard times since uh, they were freed from the clutches of the evil meteor in the last game. It turns out that that a computer game was made by a company called LucasArts based on the events that had transpired five years earlier earlier uh that game surprisingly sold massively well unfortunately dr fred never signed the contract which would give him the right to royalties from the sales of the game uh bernard has some figuring to do here eventually of course bernard gets the diamond hoagie and laverne return and the three are sent back one day into the past for a final showdown with the purple tentacle you're listening to the upper memory block podcast Time for All right, so now that we got the story, we got the gameplay and all that, what kind of machine did we need to play Day of the Tentacle? Well, not much, it appears. Uh, to run the floppy version, you needed an 8286 CPU running at least OS 3.1. Now, the game supported keyboard and mouse and joystick as input methods, though it was really optimized for the mouse. I couldn't imagine playing this game with a, with a joystick, even with a keyboard. Just the, the cursor movement would be too damn slow. Uh, if you had the CD-ROM talky version, which I did not, you needed at least DOS 5.0, MSCDEX 2.1, that's Microsoft 
compact disc extensions 2.1 and uh, at least a double speed cd-rom on top of 640k of conventional memory you also needed two megs of ems that is extended not expanded memory i'm sure in the last 90 odd episodes i've talked about the difference between extended and expanded memory so uh i won't bore you with it again but i'm sure sometime in the future i will revisit the subject because i love talking about crap like that uh graphically the game supported uh one mode and one mode only 256 color vga at 320 by 200 uh we'll talk more about the graphics and art style in the dev story but suffice it to say right now that the game looks unique even today i mean looking at the visuals you get a very chuck jones looney tunes feel uh, with very expressive and wackily animated characters all the proportion and very colorful backgrounds i mean the game definitely has a certain look a certain aesthetic that would not have been possible in 16 colors of course the game ran on an updated version of uh, the engine that its predecessor created scum as we discuss every time we hit on one of these games, and as we relearned for the first time last week, SCUM stands for Script Creation Utility for Maniac Mansion and was initially developed by uh, Ron Gilbert and Chip Morningstar. Uh, for more information on the inception of the engine, roll back two episodes to episode 89 where I discuss Maniac Mansion. The game's music was composed by the LucasArts Dream Team of Peter McConnell, Michael Land, and Clint Bajakian. By this time, the three musicians had a great system in place where they basically split the composing duties equally. Uh, this had worked for them on previous projects like Monkey Island 2 and Fate of Atlantis. And uh, luckily, this game was pretty naturally split into three parts. Uh, McConnell focused mostly on Bernard's adventures in the present, while Land worked on the future and Bajakian on colonial times. Uh, the Looney Tunes-esque nature of the art uh, inspired the composers along the same lines. Each character had their own theme, which would be riffed on depending on the situation. In true Looney Tunes style, the character themes were mixed in with quirky parodies of uh, classic musical themes, including uh, things like God Save the Queen, uh, the Addams Family theme, and much more. Not a moment in this game goes by where there isn't some form of music playing either in the background or in the foreground. You've heard it in, in the clips I've played. It's, there's, there's constant music. Uh, LucasArts' iMuse system is leveraged here in spades. I love iMuse so much. I mean, it's such a slick piece of tech that is really only being reproduced again with uh, kind of more uh, non-MIDI music. Really only very recently, I'd say probably, you know, in the past couple years kind of a thing. Uh, the composers would create themes with shorter repeating sections that would be dynamically loaded as you transitioned from screen to screen and live mixed and then transitioned into longer and potentially more dramatic themes as the screen settled into uh, its new position. You basically had no idea you weren't just hearing a static pre-recorded track. The transitions were that smooth and that great, but they were all dynamic. I mean, I know I've talked about iMuse before, especially when I discussed uh, the X-Wing series, but it's just one of those things that's so amazing because you don't notice that it's working. That's my favorite thing, and it just shows great attention to detail and amazingly slick technological skill that you don't know this thing is doing something special, but it really, really is. That is so cool.
You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, dev story time. So unlike most of the sequels we talk about, uh, Day of the Tentacle did not involve Ron Gilbert to a huge degree. So, you know, the original creator of the series wasn't really involved in in the direct sequel. Uh, By the time Dot came about, I think, if my timing is right, Gilbert was sort of in the process of leaving LucasArts to go create Humongous Entertainment, but he was still involved in the project to some degree. Primarily, though, Dot was conceived by two newer hires at LucasArts, Tim Schafer and Dave Grossman. Now, we've discussed Tim Schaefer a few times before. Uh, Schaefer studied computer science at UC Berkeley, and uh, during his studies, he sort of took a, a bit of an interest in writing. After graduation, he took work creating databases for small companies in an effort to get a job at uh, you know, larger firms like Atari or Hewlett Packard or whatever, you know, kind of the generic, I'm a programmer, I want to work for a big company kind of goal. Well, his plan didn't really pan out very well, and... Um, you know, he wasn't really getting getting a lot of interviews. He wasn't getting any offers. But luckily, uh, he came across a posting for a job at Lucasfilm Games for a programmer who could also write game dialogue. So he applied and he had a phone screen with uh, David Fox, who we discussed uh, in the Maniac Mansion show. Apparently, and I've told this story before, uh, the phone interview didn't go over super well. Uh, Schaefer said he was a big fan of an early LucasArts game, Ball Blaster. Fox quickly informed Schaefer that the game's real name was actually Ball Blazer, and uh, the pirated version of the game was called Ball Blaster. Whoops. Despite this little snafu, um, Schaefer was asked to submit his resume. To make up for this error, he submitted his resume as a uh, comic depicting his hiring at Lucasfilm Games in the form of a text adventure, which uh, is pretty cool. And that did it. He was hired in 1989 and immediately went to Scum University as a scumlet. Uh, scumlets were scripters who were sort of the workhorses of the company, uh, leveraging the scum engine to bring the life to life the ideas of senior game designers such as Ron Gilbert. Uh, another of the scumlets was Dave Grossman. Before either of the new hires got the chance to have uh, any real training on the engine or to, especially to start working on any new projects, uh, they were tasked with playtesting Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the action game, and then they got moved over to implementing the now very famous and well-known NES version of Maniac Mansion. Now, eventually, they did start working on games, and uh, as time passed, Gilbert and Grossman's work became well-regarded in the company, and uh, this led Ron Gilbert to ask them if they'd like to join him on his new project, the game that would become The Secret of Monkey Island. Uh, They joined up and ended up being responsible for a good two-thirds of uh, Monkey Island's dialogue. Ron Gilbert stated that his initial intention for uh, Monkey Island was uh, a bit more of a serious game than uh, the one they ended up with, but the dialogue put in by Schaefer and Grossman was so funny that it convinced him to lighten the game's tone and make it a comedy. Now, with Monkey Island and its sequel under their belts, management figured... Uh, the two men were ready to run a project on their own. Their sense of humor seemed like it would match well with the Maniac Mansion series, so they were offered co-lead on uh, a sequel to that seminal game. Now, they weren't left completely to their own devices. Ron Gilbert and Gary Winnick joined up initially to help the two newer designers with the initial planning and uh, story ideas. And the game story went through quite 
a few different permutations, including one where Bernard actually got rich off of uh, the success of the Maniac Mansion video game. And uh, this version also included Razor as uh, Bernard's girlfriend, though she was really only with him because of his money. In fact, initially, the game was much more of a direct sequel to the first one, uh, featuring a group of six characters, much like the first game. Uh, They wanted to carry over the most interesting people from Maniac Mansion, which of course included the four Edisons, Dr. Fred, Nurse Edna, Weird Ed, and of course, Dead Cousin Ted. Now, there is one fact here where I do have some conflicting reports. Uh, I was posting around on Twitter about, um, if you guys remember in the Maniac Mansion show, I talked about that short-lived, I believe it was a family channel TV show. And uh, Ron Gilbert, in uh, I think one of the Thimbleweed Park uh, podcasts, said that the name Edison, which did not make it into the first game, did come from that TV show. And he says that's the only thing that survived from from the short-lived Joe Flaherty uh, show. However, uh, when we talked about it a little bit on Twitter, David Fox corrected me saying that they always knew the Edison's name, even though it wasn't mentioned in the first game. So, hey, believe who you will. Who knows? Anyways, wherever the name came from, the family that inhabits the mansion was now named Edison, which we didn't have in that first game. Now, from the perspective of the hero characters, uh, the mechanic from the last game was also brought over. So there was to be a total of seven characters initially, out of which you could choose three. Uh, The first was Bernard, He was hailed as everyone's favorite character, so he was immediately brought over. Also brought over was Razor, the punk rock chick from Maniac Mansion. Uh, As I said, in some drafts, she was Bernard's girlfriend, and others she may not have been. And then we get into completely new kids. Uh, Moonglow was a short, baggy, clothes-wearing girl or woman, or I don't know, hard to tell. And uh, Chester was uh, a black uh, beatnik poet, super thin, you know, kind of uh, tight black turtleneck, all that stuff. And then, of course, we have Laverne and Hoagie, basically in the uh, the forms that we see them in the game. Laverne was actually based on one of Dave Grossman's ex-girlfriends, and Hoagie was based on a Megadeth roadie that Schaefer knew. So they had their pool of bad guys and good guys. Now they needed a story and some mechanics. So as you do, they had a ton of ideas and uh, threw out most of them and eventually settled on the idea of incorporating time travel. It struck them as the most interesting uh, kind of approach from a gameplay perspective. They settled on two time periods, one around the Revolutionary War and the other in the future. Now, in the past, they could have fun with things like modifying the Constitution to create some minor advantage in the future. Uh, Grossman thought it was hilarious to enact massive history-altering changes, like, again, modifying the Constitution just to solve a very minor adventure game inconvenience. Uh, It was sort of his poke at the genre. Uh, When it came to the future, the decision was easy. I mean, basically, moving the game to the future has left them free of any sort of framework. They could do whatever they wanted. They could make the future however they wanted, with whatever rules they wanted. They could do whatever they wanted as long as it served the game and the story. So the team got together with uh, artist Larry Ahern, and started concepting out their characters, fleshing them out with backstories and working on designs. Ahern was very adamant that they settle on an art style for the game. He was actually a bit disappointed with the way Monkey Island 2 had worked out since uh, they had to bring on additional artists late in the process to complete uh, all the assets on time. And this, he felt, 
led the game to uh, having a bit of a disjointed art style. So as we discussed in the tech focus, Ahern took inspiration from Chuck Jones and his Looney Tunes. Unlike the more realistic-ish style of Monkey Island, the cartoonish approach in Day of the Tentacle allowed for bigger sprites with bigger, more expressive heads and faces, which you can really, really see as you play the game. I mean, sprites smile, they frown, they look surprised. It's really, really great. Uh, Peter Chan was brought in to do backgrounds, and uh, he ran with the Looney Tunes style as well. The two artists would compare notes constantly to ensure that characters and background styles worked well together. And they were actually so inspired by Chuck Jones that they invited him to the ranch to take a look at their work and offer some criticisms on it. So, you know, they were definitely going for a Looney Tunes look and feel to the point where they had the guy there telling them what they were doing right and wrong. Now, eventually, Gilbert and Winnick sort of stepped away and Schaefer and Grossman got into writing. Uh, Dave Grossman said most of the game's script was actually written at night after most of uh, the other employees at LucasArts had left. Uh, he felt there was less distractions and... Uh, you know, I can't help with agree, but agree with him. A lot of times at work, you get very sidetracked by things with people wandering around during the day, and it's really hard to do really good, focused, creative work. So uh, totally understand why they do that at night. Eventually, though, the two designers realized that their approach of six or seven characters was very overcomplicated, and it really wasn't contributing much to the game itself. Uh, they kept the Edisons but they cut the total hero characters to the minimum they needed to tell their developing three-period time travel story. Razor, Moonglow, and Chester were dropped, though Chester actually morphed into uh, Red Edison's twin sons that you meet in uh, colonial times. Now, in an effort to set the stage and the tone of their game, uh, they planned to have a very long and detailed non-interactive intro spanning from the title screen all the way to the release of the tentacles and the time travel accident. This was unprecedented for LucasArts games. Now, up to this point, credits were rolled over some stills or were semi-interactive like Fate of Atlantis, so you weren't really sitting, not doing anything for very long. Uh, Grossman and Schaefer planned for this intro to last like seven minutes. Uh, Larry Ahern was concerned as he felt this was pretty damn long. Uh, he thought players would get bored for that long without any interaction, so he suggested that they cut the intro time by half, giving the player control once the team arrives at the mansion. Now, this cut the intro itself down to a much more palatable four minutes, though realistically your interactions until the actual Chronojohn demo are pretty limited. So as development on the game progressed, a huge amount of animation was added to uh, to the resource files, to the scum engine, blah, blah, blah. So much so that it ended up hitting the limit of what the current scum engine at that time could actually support. Uh, changes were made to increase that limit, so it wasn't really a huge problem. However, this led Ron Gilbert to, to make kind of a joke reminiscing about how tiny Maniac Mansion was in comparison to Day of the Tentacle. Realizing what he was saying, they decided that they would add the original game into Day of the Tentacle, playable on the computer in Weird Ed's room. Now, this might be not a huge deal today, but it was an incredibly novel concept at the time and would allow new players to experience the first game in the series that they might have missed. In fact, this is the way I played Maniac Mansion for the first time, and I know for a fact that's the way a bunch of you played it for the first time too. As the end of 1992 approached the team had a bit of a thought. Initially, 
they had decided against doing any voice work uh, on this game as it would necessitate distribution on CD-ROM. Uh, it was felt that the install base of CD-ROM drives was much too low to merit the extra cost and the extra effort of voice production. However, by the end of 92, that install base had actually risen pretty dramatically. Now, since the game was already sort of behind schedule and uh, they had no hope of releasing for, uh, for the holidays in 1992, Kelly Flock, who was the general manager of uh, LucasArts at the time, suggested that, you know what, we got time and uh, CD-ROMs are popular now. Let's record some voiceover. Now, with that, Day of the Tentacle would be the first LucasArts game to ship with full voice acting at launch and also be the first game to ship both a floppy and a CD version at launch. Uh, the floppy version would support the broad base of computer owners with older hardware, and the CD-ROM version would target newer 386 owners. Now, unlike their counterparts at Sierra, who grabbed anyone and everyone from accounting to do voices in their games, Dot had proper actors and voiceover artists being directed by uh, Tamlin Barra. The 4,500 lines of dialogue were recorded in high quality and were compressed as little as they could be to maintain sound fidelity. Now, not as high quality as they would be today, but uh, for the time, the voiceover stuff sounded amazing. Of course, all this audio data couldn't fit on the floppy version, which shipped on a mere six uh, floppy disks, so obviously that was left out. So Day of the Tentacle released June 25th, 1993 to amazing critical reviews and sold fairly well, though it was by no means really a blockbuster. Uh, reviewers loved, you know, they loved all the things that we all love about the game. It had great art, it had great humor, it had a slick interface, uh, it had a lack of death, which was really cool, lack of dead ends, which was very novel. Uh, reviewers and fans alike found the game to be light years ahead of the original and uh, even... To this day, it regularly makes it onto lists of the best games of all time. So, what does the future hold for both Maniac Mansion and Day of the Tentacle to cap off this uh, UMB two-parter? Well, it appeared that in 2012, LucasArts Singapore was working on a special edition of the game uh, in the same vein as the Monkey Island special editions. However, um, that project was actually shelved when LucasArts was shut down after the Disney acquisition. Luckily though, and uh, shortly thereafter, an announcement came at PlayStation Experience 2014 where Tim Schafer was uh, back at it with his current company, Double Fine Productions. They would be working on a remastered version of Day of the Tentacle. Uh, the remaster released in March of 2016 and is very well done. Uh, much like the remaster of Grim Fandango, it doesn't add any additional puzzles or gameplay and makes many quality of life improvements, including fully redrawn graphics, re-recorded music, and remastered dialogue taken directly from the full quality recordings. Uh, the UI is updated to the newer verb coin interface, but you can always retain the option of uh, flipping back to the original graphics, uh, UI, and sound. Add in a developer commentary to that, and you've got an awesome package. Uh, Schaefer has said that it's a miracle that everyone involved in the rights acquisition process was so willing and cooperative. Uh, Lucasfilm slash Disney even opened the archives to pull everything that they had on uh, on the game. So... You know, they, they did a really good job with this remaster. To my mind, all they really did was, uh, you know, taking what we thought the game looked like in our heads back in 1993 
and put it on the screen. They basically just sharpened it up in, in all, you know, in all senses. Now, you can get your hands on Day of the Tentacle Remastered on both GOG and Steam for $15 US uh, legally. As far as I can tell, this is the only way to get it now. And uh, it even comes with the deluxe edition of Maniac Mansion bundled in and playable from, hey, Weird Ed's computer. So that's Day of the Tentacle. Now, from the perspective of Maniac Mansion, aside from getting it in Day of the Tentacle Remastered, there is a project I'd like to talk about, which I think I've discussed before. Uh, I'm sure many of you have heard and even have backed Thimbleweed Park. Now, this is an in-development Kickstarter game led by Ron Gilbert, Gary Winnick, and David Fox of Maniac Mansion fame. Uh, They're touting the game as being done in the style of a long-lost scum adventure game from the heyday of uh, LucasArts or Lucasfilm Games. Uh, As far as we know so far, the game follows a pair of detectives, agents Ray and Reyes, Reyes, uh, investigating a murder in the town of Thimbleweed Park. Now, the game's UI is reminiscent of uh, Monkey Island or Day of the Tentacle, albeit with hints of modernity to it. Uh, I've been following the development of this game fairly closely through a weekly podcast put out by the dev team where they discuss work being done in the form of an agile stand-up meeting, which is something that I know well in, uh, in my day job. It's really fascinating, and I think that I can say without a doubt that Thimbleweed Park is a great example of uh, how to be open and transparent in a crowdfunded game development project. The game is scheduled for release in January of 2017, and I, for one, am looking forward to it. Okay, hey, a couple more emails, because that's what we do on this show. So, first one from Ikifu. Iki writes, Hello, Joe and assorted blocker peoples. Was hoping I'd make this response my first voicemail, but time got away from me. Despite not having played Maniac Mansion very much, neither when it came out nor since, Day of the Tentacle is one of the first games I remember genuinely loving. I can still sit down and play it any damn day of the week, whether that's when I got home from work or having a crazy or having a lazy day while on vacation in France. And unlike some games I love, which I don't see which don't seem so great after you start in to examine the design, this game seems to get better. So much of Day of the Tentacle shines. The art style is unique without being jarring, perfectly fitting the skewed reality that allows sentient mutant color-coded tentacles, something that's blatantly obvious if you set the interface to modern and hit F1 to switch the graphics. Uh, the new art matches up really well with the old. The puzzles don't veer into the moon logic territory, although to this day I always try closing a door to check if there's something behind it. There's the game design, which not only lets you shift your focus to someone else if you got stuck, but but in my opinion, increased the sense of accomplishment you got from solving puzzles when you'd realized you'd just changed history in some way. And that final gag as the credits are about to roll is just the cherry on an already delicious and presumably fattening cake. Not to mention how well the voice actors nailed their characters. From Bernard's meddling milk toastiness, I apologize for making you pronounce that, to Laverne's gleeful insanity, even when she's explaining that she can't use her scalpel on something because she's made an agreement with her therapist. I'll probably have to review this game one day and I somewhat dread the prospect. I love the game so much that I'll worry the whole time that I'm not doing it justice. On top of all that, the remaster was very well done too. Having just done a video critique of uh, the Secret of Monkey Island Special Edition, it was great to see a remaster done properly, or if nothing else, a remaster that didn't have an OpenGL 3.3 requirement for an 18-year-old game, goddammit, Grim Fandango Remastered Y. 
I had way too much fun switching the individual options for graphics, music, and interface between classic and modern, settling on a preference of classic graphics, modern music, and modern interface. The fact that they have classic graphics version of all the new interface elements was pretty cute. They've even since patched it to let you use the old compressed sound effects, which have been updated and in a move that will make Mr. Trolls very happy, added multiple slave slots for Maniac Mansion. They clearly cared about the project, and I think they've done right by the game. I can't recommend this game enough for any listeners, either in either remastered or its original form. It's it's a classic, pure and simple. You should play. Play now. It's good. Go play now. Also, I spell-checked this email using American English just so you'd have an easier time reading it. At least I assume Canadians use American English apart from the ones who use French. Okay, rambling now. Looking forward to the next great UMB adventure. Altex, Ikifu. Well, thank you, Ikifu. And um, I think officially we Canadians use British English. I think there's even a Canadian English, which is basically British English. And uh, the ones that use French, well, meh. You know, they're who they are. <laughs> So thanks for that. Great memories, great recommendation, and uh, yeah, thank you. Next, we have the second part of Jenny's email. So Jenny continues, I sat down to write this email and found myself at a loss. What can I say about Day of the Tentacle that hasn't been said by everyone else? It's an absolute classic, with spot-on Looney Tunes feel, and with the critical and audience reception of the remastered version, dare I say timeless? Accolades aside, I've always loved how the game played with time travel, and I wish more games would play with time travel with time travel cause and effect more often. I'll debate time travel until the cows come home. Don't get me started on Prince of Persia Warrior Within's massive mid-game screw-up. If I had to nitpick, I'd say that I wish the game had taken more advantage of the time travel with its puzzles outside of simply sending inventory items back and forth, like the wine bottle vinegar puzzle, for example. The recent remastered version had an achievement list written by co-creator Dave Grossman, and while I thought I knew the game backwards and forwards, and I still think I do, the achievement list regardless had some things I'd never tried in 20 years of playing the game, like having Laverne try to eat the cat. Dave the Tentacle had uh, refusal messages outside of the standard I can't do that, and that attention to detail makes it shine that much brighter. That the game still holds up and is still quite funny two decades later is accomplishment enough. To find new ways to interact with it is an absolute joy. Back when Telltale was still making point-and-click adventure games instead of interactive adventure games, the CEO talked about an episodic dot sequel. As Telltale's game design mentality has since changed, it's never going to happen, but I wish it would, perhaps including the characters that were cut out of dot. Thinking about it, I can't imagine what they'd do if they couldn't do time travel shenanigans again. I'm not sure you can successfully top that. <coughs> Space Quest 5. Cough. Come at me, trolls. <laughs> wow, that's the third trolls call out in this episode. The success and treatment of Dot Remastered gives me hope for the upcoming Full Throttle Remastered. And who knows, maybe someday lesser but still beloved LucasArts classics will follow. Zach McCracken, perhaps? Keep up the good work. Jenny. P.S. Never could figure out what to do with the hubcap and Laverne section of Dot. Anyone know? Honestly, Jenny, I don't know. So thank you for that. And uh, no, I don't know about the, what you do with the hubcap. I don't even remember that there is a hubcap, frankly. I guess I skipped that part. But uh, thank you. Great memories again. Great opinions. And uh, trolls, you keep getting called out, man. All right. So now we've got a couple of voicemails and then we're going to wrap things up. So we've got a voicemail from our good buddy, Akago. Take it away, sir. Yo, Joe. This is Ami Akago here again to ramble some more about a game from my childhood. 
As a kid, I played a little bit of Maniac Mansion, but never really got very far with it for two important reasons. One, it was too tricky for my dumb little self to figure out, and two, we had a pirated version with no copy protection information, so I'd always end up blowing the house to kingdom come trying to open the door up to the third floor. But then one day, my brother brings home a copy of Day of the Tentacle, and the rest, as they say, is history. I immediately fell in love with it the moment I saw it. The zany art style with its bizarre proportions and skewed perspectives was like nothing I'd ever seen, and beautifully animated to boot. I loved the cartoony sense of humor with things like the poor hamster getting shoved into a freezer for 200 years before being thawed out in a microwave, or depressed Dwayne attempting to blow his brains out only to find a red flag and a stick coming out of his ear. Even if I wasn't familiar with American history, I still loved the outlandish time travel plot and messing around with the past to solve the puzzles, which remains one of the best parts of the game. The music was, and still is, fantastically memorable, and with how much I replayed the game at the time, I was humming it constantly. Like, I must have replayed this game dozens and dozens of times back then, to the point that I pretty much memorized most of the dialogue. And speaking of dialogue, this was also one of the very first games that we got on CD-ROM after we got one of them newfangled CD-ROM drives for our PC. And hearing all the characters actually speak was a wholly new experience. From radical green tentacle to smart-ass Bernard, everyone was brilliantly performed. One of the best examples of this is right at the start of the game, where you open the grandfather clock to find a secret passage down to Dr. Fred's lab, and Bernard exclaims, Aha! A secret passage! This is all too easy. Like, that line somehow always stood out to me so much that I quoted it at every possible opportunity back then. I also have to mention how much I adore Laverne. I never really noticed this as much back then, but replaying the game now, I've come to realize just how utterly gleefully psychotic she is, with how spaced out she always sounds and how she casually comments on how her therapist and her have an agreement about how she should use her scalpel. Plus, I adore that silly little walking animation of hers where she runs around flailing her arms and flashing a kooky grin on her face. Naturally, when the remastered version came out recently, I immediately was all over that, and I'm really impressed with how they redrew all the graphics at a high resolution without sacrificing any of the game's original look and feel. Though the old graphics still look great in their own right as well, but it's great how the remaster lets you mix and match with different graphical styles and interfaces. Hearing all of the original voices in higher quality was a treat as well, though I was disappointed that they didn't really do much with the music, because that was one of my favorite parts of the original, but it still sounds great regardless. The new sound effects, on the other hand, were rather distracting and some felt weaker than they did in the original, but I reckon getting high-quality versions of the older sound effects just wasn't doable. Either way, I'm glad this fantastic game got such a well-done re-release so it could find a whole new audience in the present day as well, and I had a blast going through it all over again. Anyway, Joe, keep being awesome, and remember, if you want to save the world, you gotta push a few old ladies down the stairs. Thanks, Akako, and that is some great advice, both from you and from the game. <laughs> that is awesome. All right, so now we have uh, an initial email from, or a voicemail from Tomer, and uh, then we're going to follow up with uh, a little follow-up. So uh, take it away for number one, Tomer. Hello, Joe. Um, I figured I'll take a last-minute opportunity and write in with my thoughts about Day of the Tentacle, uh, I'll try and keep it short. This is, to my mind, a game that perfects pretty much the 90s point-and-click adventure genre. Just everything, literally everything, works here. The writing is amazing, the art is amazing, the music is amazing. It's really, really well written, it's really funny, 
uh, it's zany, right? It's more like playing a Warner Brothers cartoon, I think, than playing an adventure game. It just works, and I mean, spoiler alert, in what other game do you actually get to put a frozen hamster in a microwave? Anyway, it's perfect, uh, and I just wanted to give a shout out to the uh, the team at Double Fine for uh, pulling together the remastered edition. It's absolutely everything I could have hoped for. I don't know if you're going to be touching on that or not, but suffice to say that it's just, you know, it's the same game except it's updated, and the update is so, uh, you know, is so uh, major that you can't tell that it's a dated game, but then it's so subtle that you can't tell that it's a different game from the original, uh, other than the interface, which I feel is marginally improved, but you can always switch to the classic one. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's just a perfect game in any variation of it. Go, play it, uh, love it. If you don't love it, uh, seek professional help. There's something wrong with you, and that's that. Do you have the code is Cheers. Bye. Well, thank you, Tomer. But uh, Tomer very quickly uh, sent me a a, a, a follow-up because he realized that, uh, you know, he probably just said too much. So take it away with uh, revision number one. Hi, Joe. I actually recorded a much longer voicemail, and I figured that I can be a lot more concise. So here goes. Day of the Tentacle is perfect. If you don't like it, there is something wrong with you, and you should seek professional help. Bye. Best voicemail I've ever gotten. <laughs> yeah, so pretty much uh, can't help but agree, but uh, we'll leave my opinion for after the last email, voicemail, whatever it's called, from Trolls. Don't worry, it's of a reasonable length. <laughs> we love bugging you, Trolls. Hello, Joe and fellow bloggers. Space Quest Historian here uh, with a, well, hopefully more concise voicemail than what I'm used to delivering. Uh, but I did have to chime in on Day of the Tentacle, which is, of course, one of my favorite all-time adventure games. I say, of course, because I've said this many, many times on uh, Joe's Hangout uh, in particular, um, and I already told the story about how it was my first ever CD-ROM game, and I played it on a single-speed drive, even though it required a double-speed drive and all that. So I'm not going to bore you with, with that story. Uh, I am, however, going to uh, try and weigh in on some of my experiences playing the game as an adolescent. I was maybe 13 or 14 years old when I played the disc version for the first time and uh, not being a very smart kid and uh, well I'm still not very smart but I was a, a kid back then uh, and I didn't know a lot about American history so when Hoagie gets sent uh, 200 years back in the past uh, in uh, colonial times and uh, hangs around uh, George Washington and Ben Franklin and all that I was really playing catch-up uh, because uh, I had no idea who Betsy Ross was I didn't know that Washington had an affinity for cherry trees. I didn't even know the adage that uh, washing your car makes it rain. And I did uh, overlook the hints that was given in the present time when Bernard, uh, you know, sees a, a car parked in the mansion parking lot and it says, wash me in the dust. And he goes, whoa, it, it always rains when I wash my car. That's a that's a pretty, you know, solid hint right there. But I completely overlooked that. I didn't know the adage that every time you wash your car, it somehow magically rains. 
Uh, and I didn't listen to the audio commentary on the uh, remastered edition of uh, Day of the Tentacle, where uh, I think it's Dave Grossman who, sent, who sits down and, uh, you know, tries to defend that puzzle. And, uh, you know, apparently a lot of other people gave them shit for that puzzle. So I wasn't the only one, but uh, I will kind of defend that one. And also the, the whole thing about Ben Franklin and this kite experiment, for some reason I knew about that, but it's, again, is one of those things uh, in American history and American folklore, I guess, uh, where it's not... It's not something that a little snot-nosed 13-year-old kid who adores adventure games uh, from Denmark will know about. So that always kind of, you know, freaked me out a little bit, uh, or at least it was mildly educational. At least now I know uh, that, uh, you know, George Washington had wooden teeth and liked to chop down cherry trees. I still don't know why. I don't know why that's a thing in American history, but anyway. Um, my favorite part of the game was, of course, the future, you know. Space Quest historian and all that. I like sci-fi. So when Laverne is in the future and uh, uh, walking around the mansion in, in the future with all the uh, you know <laughs> the doors sound. I mean, I, I remember just walking through doors because I loved the, the sound effect of the doors. And uh, my absolute favorite part of that was the Human Show, where um, uh, you know she has to dress up a dead cousin Ted and enter him into the Human Show, and then they get judged on best laugh, best smile, and best hair. Uh, and I love that because uh, even back then, I absolutely hated, you know, dog shows. You know, those, you know, when you have pure breed dogs and you have to, you know, judge them on their posture and their ability to run through hoops. And I always thought that was so denigrating and stupid. Um, so I really liked how Day of the Tentacle kind of speared that and, uh, you know, poked fun at that. But my absolute favorite part of the entire game is actually in the present. And that's when Bernard has to rescue Dr. Fred from the IRS. Uh, there was just something about, you know, that entire sequence of events. First of all, you're manhandling this unconscious person who's wrapped up in red tape. Uh, incidentally, a joke I didn't get until many, many, many years later when I, f uh, you know, figured out what red tape is actually a euphemism for. Uh, and then, you know the you know the animation of him pulling Doctor Fred out of the window and his spine you know bends at a weird angle and such that entire sequence had me rolling on the floor laughing and that was just the disc version so when I got the CD-ROM version and uh, you know these uh, IRS agents have this very monotone fast talking voice hey, what are you doing in there stop that that was just that made it even even funnier and the voice acting in general is is so, is so phenomenal and i really really wish i knew who the voice actor for laverne is because that is a brilliant voice she just throws herself into it especially that psychotic laugh that i won't try to emulate here um you know, laverne is just a heart stealer because <laughs> she is just phenomenally fucked up and weird do you want to use your scalpel well no do you want to use mine? No. Um, so, yeah, Laverne, favorite character. All the voices are actually really, really great, even the minor ones. Um, and Day of the Tentacle is uh, still one of my favorite games. I bought the remastered version pretty much when it came out, played through it again. Uh, took me longer than I expected. That is actually a pretty long game. I used to think I could do that in like uh, two hours or something. It took me uh, took me two evenings, you know, with, uh, you know, two or three hours each. Uh, so, yeah, Day of the Tentacle. Uh, an absolute masterpiece. Uh, Tim Schafer and Dave Grossman totally knocked that out of the park. It's got some of the best puzzles, the best music, the best graphics, the best anything you can think of uh, in any adventure game. So um, if for some reason those of you listening to this voicemail have never played Day of the Tentacle, what in the hell are you doing with your lives? Run out there and do it. So uh, anyway, I hope that wasn't too long. I will sign off now. Keep on being awesome and keep blocking. And how do I stop this? This is the new phone. Where is the off button? 
There you go. Five minutes and 40 seconds. That's pretty good, you know, coming from me anyway. So um, bye and have fun. Thank you, Trolls. Great job. Very concise. Very wonderful. I appreciate it greatly. So, does Day of the Tentacle hold up today? Hell yes. As, as I played through the remaster, I realized something odd. Unlike a lot of you guys that wrote in, you know, I, I agree with you. I love this game. But I don't understand why, but I haven't played it very much. I bought the disc version when it came out, and I finished it. Then I think I may have partially played through it once or twice more, and then not again until basically this episode. And I don't think I ever played through the talkie version. I have no idea why that is. I have so many fond memories of this game. I mean, the amazing art, the super detailed and smooth animations, the wonderful and prolific music, the hilarious dialogue, the creative time travel-based puzzles, the super cool mechanic of transferring items through the chronojohns. I have nothing bad to say about this game, so I honestly have no clue why I've played it so little over the years. I mean, there's nothing else to say. Play this game. It's up there probably in my top three adventures of all time, and it is absolutely in my top five games of all time. It's that good. I'm pretty sure I said this last time, but I'll say it again. I played this game without any knowledge of the events of Maniac Mansion. This game stands so well on its own, you don't need that background from the first game. But now that I've played them both, I can say for a fact that knowing who all the residents of the mansion are, where they come from, all of that, it really does make the amazing, the already amazing experience that much richer. I don't think I recommended Maniac Mansion last time, but if you're going to play Dot, at least read a plot summary for Maniac Mansion or watch a Let's Play or, hey, you know, even watch my Let's Play of or playthrough or whatever you want to call it of Maniac Mansion over at the YouTube channel. You owe it to yourself to be able to enjoy Day of the Tentacle to its fullest. This is a must play and the remaster only makes it even more compelling. Play, play, play. In fact, I think it's so important for you guys to play this I'm going to give away a copy of the remaster. So as always, just drop me an email to podcast at umbcast.com with the subject line dot D-O-T-T remastered giveaway. And I will eventually in a week or so, two weeks probably, uh, pick someone and send it off to one lucky listener. So email dot remastered giveaway podcast umbcast.com if you want your own copy from Steam of Day of the Tentacle Remastered. Okay, so that's that. Thanks to everyone who contributed. As always, so much email this time. I love it. We got a long show here, but uh, you know, the more voices, the better. That's what I always say. So next time, I'm going to do something special. I'm going to do another one of my UMB extended memory episodes where I talk about a modern game that I think is relevant to us. Guess what? There's a new Doom out, so I'm going to play it And I'm going to do my thing for it. So we're going to play Doom from this year, 2016. And uh, we'll talk about how it's different. We'll talk about how it's the same. We'll talk about if it's a good game. We'll talk about if my computer can run it or not, which is going to be another interesting uh, thing to check out. So uh, looking forward to doing that. 
Until then, you can send emails or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com if you guys have more things to say about uh, Diamond and the Rough Games, if you have more things to say about Maniac Mansion or Day of the Tentacle, drop me a line. I'll talk about them at the beginning of the next show, just like I did in this one. Uh, Thanks, as always, to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find him over at moyermultimedia.com. And don't forget, if you enjoy the show, I said at the beginning and I will say it again, you can help me out over at patreon.com slash umbcast. Uh, If you find some value from the show, please consider joining all my really great current patrons and donating a buck or two per show to help me with the costs of, uh, you know, doing all this stuff. Uh, Doom's an $80 game. (laughs) And uh, you're also going to help me hit the next goal of more long games. We're actually really close to, uh, to getting that next goal. So uh, as always, you can check out the show notes at umbcast.com for this episode and all the other episodes. Join the Facebook group over at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. We have a great little community over there that, uh, you know, you guys are, are, are keeping going. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash show and me personally at billybob. 476 twitter.com slash billybuff476 you can find the show on youtube at youtube.com slash umbcast where i put up videos on my game research sessions and some other fun stuff whenever i actually get around to it subscribe to the show on itunes stream us live at stitcher radio and that is that and we will see you next time for doom here in the upper memory block You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. 
So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join.